I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest is Jamie Raskin, who represents Maryland's 8th Congressional District in the U.S. House of Representatives, and in 2021 was the lead manager in the second impeachment of Donald Trump in response to the January 6th insurrection that aimed to block the certification of Joe Biden as president-elect. Raskin is a member of the House Judiciary Committee, the Rules Committee, the Oversight and Reform Committee, and the Administration Committee. He's also a member of the Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol. Raskin is considered one of the most progressive members of Congress, continuing in the same spirit as he had when serving as Majority Whip of the Maryland State Senate, leading successful fights for marriage equality, abolition of the death penalty, passage of the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, among many other issues. Before entering politics, Raskin was a constitutional law professor and author of several books, including two on the Supreme Court. His most recent book, a memoir published on January 1st of this year, is Unthinkable, Trauma, Truth, and the Trials of American Democracy, which delves into two juxtaposed unthinkable events, having to bury his 25-year-old son, Tommy, on January 5th, 2021, a few days after his dying by suicide, and then the very next day, attending Congress on January 6th and personally living through the horrific violence of the insurrection. So Congressman Raskin, it's an honor to welcome you to Delving In. And thank you for having me, Stuart. First, Congressman Raskin, allow me to extend my condolences on the death of your son. In my understanding, the death of one's child is the most harrowing of all losses, and a death by suicide is the most difficult to come to terms with. The grief process in this situation is not one with an endpoint and extends throughout the rest of the life of the parent. So I, I admire your candor and courage in sharing your experience your love of your son and your devotion to the country. Above all else, your book, Unthinkable, is an inspirational and life-affirming book in that you refuse to turn away from and deny the reality of events that can rip a person apart. In a way, Unthinkable is three books in one, a biography of your amazingly gifted, wise, and empathetic son, a piece of your own autobiography, which also helps us to get to know your remarkable father and other family members, and reflections on the meanings and dangers of the January 6th insurrection. Uh, my hope for this interview is that we'll be able to keep to the spirit of your book and interweave all three strands as they imbue each other with additional layers of meaning for you and guidance for us. So as we begin, I also wanted to comment on the right on target title of your book, Unthinkable. It seems that once an unthinkable event actually happens, it's almost impossible to stop thinking about it. Um, yes, well, I think that that's right. You know, we were buffeted by the most unthinkable, most unimaginable catastrophe that a family can face. Uh, and then just a week after we lost Tommy on the last day of the year in 2020, uh, I was on the floor of the House as part of the um, joint session receiving Electoral College votes, and then we experienced that second calamitous event of a public nature. And uh, my uh, youngest daughter, Tabitha, was with me, and um, our son-in-law, Hank, who's married to our oldest daughter, Hannah, he was there as well. So these are the... These are the, the opening unthinkable events 
uh, for the story that I tell about that 50 day period in my life. You know, it, it's fitting, I think, that this interview is taking place the day after Yom Kippur, which is our shared heritage, uh, with its intertwined themes of individual and collective mortality and social responsibility. And I was wondering, how has your heritage, and I, I, I prefer the word heritage in the situation to, to faith, because I think it really has to do with the heritage of values and not necessarily beliefs per se. Uh, how has your heritage informed your work over the years? Well, I mean, that's a complicated question, I suppose, um, um, that I do try to address somewhat in my book. But, I, you know, I feel very closely connected to the Jewish community and to my Jewish heritage and culture. Um, I've uh, wrestled with the theological questions, I should say. And um, my son, Tommy, he, I think he had kind of a similar relationship. I mean, he, um, he was bar mitzvahed and he, uh, he taught Sunday school, actually, but he taught it in a, a pretty uh, irreverent and visionary way. And um, I think that Tommy was a, a great humanist uh, who was a champion of the human rights of all people and expressed solidarity with people everywhere seeking peace and justice and democracy. And of course, he was also a great champion of animal rights and animal welfare and was a passionate vegan and recruited a lot of people to that cause. So he was a real opponent of violence. And um, he influenced me a lot in those things. So I, I guess I would say, you know, it's it's part of who I am. It's uh, it's constitutive, and I've drawn a lot of meaning and a lot of support and solidarity from um, the Jewish community. But we've received that kind of support and solidarity really from people of all faith traditions and heritages. So, so perhaps it would make sense to to talk about your father at this point, uh, Marcus Raskin, and and the early seeds he planted in you, maybe some of the foundation stories in your own development uh, as a social justice warrior and and a defender of democratic ideals. Just to start with a quote from him, you uh, quoted him as saying, "When everything looks hopeless, you are the hope." Well, yeah, my dad was really a wonderful man, and. He grew up as a, a piano prodigy, and uh, music was a very important part of his life. But he ended up wanting to go to law school because he was really, you know, in the 1950s, um, he was looking for a way that law could be used to prevent another world war. His generation was very affected by World War II. My uncle, his older brother, was a a bomber pilot in World War II, and the whole world was reeling, of course, from tens of millions uh, dead from the war, from the genocide, the Holocaust. Um, so my dad was really interested in how law could be used as an instrument uh, for peace and for uh, preservation of human rights, and that's how he ended up going to law school and getting involved in politics and government. Um, but that was basically his humanitarian aspiration and motivation. And in Unthinkable, I talk a lot about the connection between my son and my father because they were 
very closely bound with each other. And Tommy was uh, very influenced by my dad. I mean, my dad was in the Kennedy administration on the National Security Council, but he ended up leaving very early over his opposition to the Vietnam War in the early 1960s, his opposition to the United States taking over for France in Indochina. And um, so my dad was a key figure in the the anti-war movement, the peace movement around Vietnam. And he was indicted in 1968 in a case called the Boston Five trial, the Dr. Spock conspiracy case. It was Dr. Spock and William Sloan Coffin and my dad, Marcus Raskin and uh, Mitchell Goodman and fifth person was Michael Ferber. And so, you know, that was the critical experience in his life, of course. And it was a a formative experience for me, which I described in the book growing up with, you know, that sense of the power of the government and the way that the government um, can be you know, an oppressive threat to people, but uh, also the the power of people working together for justice and peace. And uh, Tommy was someone who was really, uh, he was obsessed with that Boston Five trial and about what happened with my dad. And he was just fascinated by that. And I think that a career in elective politics was not something that Tommy would have pursued maybe maybe an, another kid of ours might could could we could see going in that direction but not Tommy but he he there is no doubt he would have lived and was already living a life of great uh passion as a public activist and a public intellectual and i think that that's the path he was on yeah, yeah could you explain a little bit about why he would not have wanted to go into elected office well, I tell the story of how he came with me one day when I was in the state Senate in Annapolis, and he had been writing uh, a paper in seventh grade about the integration of the University of Maryland and what was the response of the fraternities and the sororities there, which was a topic that he had come up with himself. He was fascinated by fraternities and sororities, and so he wanted to know what their politics was like. And as far as we could tell, nobody had ever really researched that subject. So he was going back and checking out the yearbooks and the newspapers and starting to interview people. And he kept coming across the name of the president of the Maryland State Senate, who I served with, Mike Miller, who was the longest serving state Senate president, not just in Maryland history, but in American history, more than 30 years. And he was very much of an old school Southern style politician. And uh, he was head of his fraternity, and Tommy kept coming across his name, so he wanted to interview him. And I don't, I don't know how Tommy experienced it, but I thought of it as uh, kind of a, a turning point for him because he was trying to ask very direct, honest, open, innocent questions. And uh, Mike Miller, who was a famously political and wily character was basically dodging the questions that Tommy was asking him. And on the way back uh, home after we were in Annapolis, Tommy basically said, I don't think I could ever do what you do. Um, And I said, you mean be like a law professor? And he said, no, I could do something like that. But I said, I don't think I could ever be a politician and deal with other politicians. And 
it was just a clarifying moment about him and also about me, I suppose, that I I am able to tolerate and indulge a lot more than I think he could. So indulging not just um, differing opinions, but differing stances, that some of which you might even consider immoral, but you have to somehow tolerate a person who has those stances. It's not all of them. You know, they, they may have some stances that you agree with and others that you find anathema, but you have to somehow work with them anyway. Yeah. Well, look, it's easy to serve with people whose politics you abhor and detest, like Marjorie Taylor Greene or Jim Jordan. I mean, it's annoying, it's irritating, but it's not profoundly morally unsettling. The difficult thing is when it's people on your side and your friends and those people are being elusive in terms of something that you view as a moral and political imperative. And so I think that's what he was saying. Um, I think that's what Tommy was trying to communicate to me. Yeah. And in, in your book, you, you really describe uh, Tommy as having a kind of purity of soul as well as just an incredibly deep sensitivity and that uh, it was hard for him, I think, to uh, absorb and, and to tolerate uh, any kind of uh, injustice or cruelty. And it just seemed like he was just extraordinarily empathic. That's right. I mean, he, he, felt, he felt all the pain and injustice of the world in a really profound way. I mean, he, you know, he could read about what Saudi Arabia was doing in Yemen and then get involved in it and, you know, read about violence against families and children. And it would be as if he had read about something happening to people in our family and he would be thinking about it and focused on it and demanding to know what it is we could do to change it. So most people's sense of moral fervor and commitment gets diluted as you move further and further away from where you live and where you are, but it wasn't like that for him. Yeah, in psychology, we talk about circles of empathy, kind of concentric circles. And for most people, as it goes, as you say, it goes outside of the inner circles, the uh, impact lessens, um, but not for him. Yeah. Um, so, so that was something that was just exquisite and extraordinary about him, but it also... I think it made it very tough. And as he was struggling with uh, depression, I think just the pain of COVID-19 and all the people we were losing and the the gun violence and the, the police violence um, and so on, all of that overcame him. Yeah, and if you don't have a, a way of buffering that or filtering that, out to some extent, it's it's so difficult in today's times of there's so much information that's so available that it's almost impossible to not feel barraged. I think I think that's right. During that period, it was just a a perfect storm of horrific things going on. Tommy never had that sense of this too shall pass. We'll get through this. He felt it very powerfully, but he was. You know, he was like a, a visitor from a time 500 years from now when humanity has gotten through all of these crises and uh, is no longer engaged in the business of oppression and violating people's rights and war and eating animals for protein and all this. Um, and he just saw things differently. 
Well, I think you just revealed yourself as an optimist if you, if you think it's only going to take 500 years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's clear that even though he maybe didn't have the right personality to be a politician, he was super proud of you. I love your description in your book about his introducing your campaign for Maryland State Senate uh, when he was only 11, that he took, this, took the stage and introduced you. Yeah, well, all of our kids have been very involved in my political career. And I think, I don't know that I would have done it had they not been interested because it obviously takes a lot of time and effort, but they were, they were always part of what I was doing. And uh, they always kept me very grounded uh, in the values and beliefs that got me started. Yeah, and you also describe him as your, I think, chief ethical advisor and consultant, even when he was quite young. I mean, he, he died at 25, but I think even when he was a teenager. Well, Tommy was a political genius who had a very great sense of electoral politics. I tell the story about how when I first decided to run for the state Senate, it was against a 32-year incumbent, and everybody was saying it was crazy. And uh, we were at a Democratic Party event, and I started to talk to one of the big power brokers in Montgomery County who was recommending that I not do it, urging me not to do it. And, you know, I was asking why he thought it was such a problem. And he said, well, you know, you, you can't win. And I said, why not? He said, he said, you can't beat the machine. And uh, Tommy was with me and he said, well, who's the machine? And he, he named several people uh, who he knew to be on the side of the incumbent. And Tommy said, well, that's three or four people, but there's 175,000 people in my dad's district. And it was just, it was a great and pure lesson in one person, one vote democracy. And I, I love to tell that story to people who are considered underdogs and outsiders, because I was the biggest underdog in the world. So he had the wisdom of, of a child that he never lost, it sounds like. Yeah. Just this kind of purity of soul and, you know, just seeing right through all of the distractions and the ruses and, and camouflage and what have you. Well, Tommy used to say it's hard to be human, and he had great compassion for people, and he saw a human striving, and he saw human difficulty, and he knew it from the inside as well. But he never wanted to be a burden on anybody else, and that's one of the great sadnesses for us, you know. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like he was anything but a burden. In, in addition to his incredible empathy skills, you also describe him as a comedian, who frequently left you in stitches. And I was, I was wondering if you might like to share some of the funnier things he would say or do. <laughs> well, he was funny all the time, all the time. I mean, I, I remember in that first campaign of mine, my uh, opponent, the incumbent, went real negative on me. And so, um, and we decided that we were not going to do any negative stuff back. But Tommy just had some very funny lines that he would do for our family and our campaign staff. Um, and um, the incumbent went to an opening of, uh, of a new kind of downtown shopping area and made a speech saying, um, you, can, you can shop until you drop, you can eat until you're full. And then Tommy would kind of continued the monologue saying, um, because we know that's not a right that you had before 
we built this. You couldn't eat until you were full before. And, you know, he, so he was just, I don't know. He was just a great improvisational comedian about whatever was going on. He was an extraordinary mimic actually. And he could do all the presidents and, um, philosophers and, you know, you, you name it, uh, from, from being a little boy, you know, I used to do JFK. It was amazing. Yeah. So I'd like to quote really quite an amazing description that you give of Tommy. Our dazzling, precious, brilliant 25-year-old Tommy, pure magic and pure love, our middle child in his second year at Harvard Law School, a moral visionary, a slam poet, an intellectual giant slayer, the king of Boggle, a natural-born comedian, a friend to all human beings but tyrants and bullies, a freedom fighter, a political essayist, a playwright, a jazz pianist, and a handsome radical visitor from a distant future where war, mass hunger, and the eating of animals are considered barbaric, intolerable, and absurd. So that last part, of course, you've mentioned before, but he really sounds like he was just a totally amazing and wonderful and incredible person. Uh, we, we miss him intensely every day. You know, at least we're at a point where we can talk about him without completely, you know, dissolving into tears. Yeah, I want to ask you about, you know, how is it different now compared to what is a year and nine months ago? How, how does the grief process change? I mean, it doesn't end, but it, it, I, I imagine it changes and it's not maybe not quite as unremitting as it was at the beginning. It comes in waves. Well, for me, it's tolerable because I, I uh, have resolved really only to do things that I feel like Tommy would be proud of and Tommy would want me to be doing. And so I feel like he's with me as I do him. Yeah, there's, there's a Jewish uh, expression of condolence, may the person's memory be for a blessing. And it's not just that the blessing in terms of good memories, it's a blessing in terms of inspiration. And certainly it sounds like uh, this is very much true for you. So in your book, you, you thank uh, Nancy Pelosi for appointing you as the lead impeachment manager, uh, seeing it as a lifeline back to the land of the living and saving you from unremitting despair and devastation. And, you know, diving back into work isn't usually the recommended process for grieving, you know, particularly in Jewish culture, which specifies the first week after the burial as a time to allow oneself to fall apart, to be taken care of, and to intensively feel the loss. But perhaps uh, extraordinary circumstances call for unorthodox, no pun intended, forms of grieving. I mean, you just plunged right in. I mean, of course, the two events were so intertwined, it's impossible, I'm sure it's impossible to un unravel them I and mean, they're just together you know i think it'll probably take me the rest of my life to understand it if i if i ever do understand it but i know that covid19 is part of the story because it was such a profoundly demoralizing and depressing time for young people uh it was such an isolation it was such a radical rupture in life and the Trump administration's criminal recklessness and dangerous denial of what was happening also had profoundly corrosive consequences for our public life and for government. And I feel as if that plague set the stage for our loss of Tommy on the last day of 2020 and also set the stage for Donald Trump's coup against America and the violent insurrection that he unleashed against us. So there's a line in um, 
in The Plague by Camus, by a character who says, you know, it may sound ridiculous to some people, but the only way to survive a plague is with common decency. And there was such indecency going on in our country um, that a lot of people didn't survive it. And democracy itself was obviously exposed to profound peril. And I think we're still in the fight of our lives to defend democratic institutions and values against the authoritarian darkness that uh, was unleashed against us and the, the virus of fascism and racism and anti-Semitism. So maybe what you were thanking uh, Nancy Pelosi for was, is to um, kind of reimmerse you in something profoundly, profoundly important where you were needed, you know, tremendously needed. Well, she threw me a lifeline because, I, you know, I wasn't eating, I wasn't sleeping, I was, I was in a daze and she was telling me I had to rally and she was telling me that I needed to rally everybody else because we were all in a state of shock, essentially. I still have colleagues who are basically suffering from something like post-traumatic stress syndrome from what happened. Nancy was saying, we need you. So uh, for that, I will be forever grateful to her. Now, of course, the January 6 hearings have continued far longer than anybody anticipated. And still after all this time, it's impossible to know their short-term impact. But but surely um, their long-term historical impact will be enormous. And I, I would imagine it's vital for your sanity and for the sanity of the other committee members to frequently remind yourself of the long view. And I'm just wondering, what's your hope for the best case long view scenario? Well, my dad used to say that democracy needs a ground to stand on, and that ground is the truth. And there's no real democracy without truth. The people have a right to know. I mean, Madison said, uh, the people who mean to be their own governors must arm themselves with the power that knowledge gives. And that's a profound point. And that knowledge is not always happy knowledge. It's oftentimes profoundly difficult knowledge. But this is the responsibility of citizens. People have got to know what we just lived through. And people have got to know what are the forces out there that still constitute a clear and present danger to the continuation of democratic institutions and the continuing progress of democratic values. And I guess the hope is that given enough time, the fog and, and smokescreen of disinformation and, and the opposite of truth will be cleared away finally. And there'll be a kind of, um, hopefully, a history that's accurate enough to know what's really happened, you know, as opposed to a pr pretend version. Yeah. Well, in the short term, right, time works against the truth because, like, Mark Twain said, I think, uh, a lie gets halfway around the world before the truth gets its shoes on. And that was before the internet when he said that. But over the long term, then time is on the side of truth because we're able to clear away the propaganda and disinformation and get it the truth of events. And I, I feel like the January 6th special committee, which was opposed by the Republican leadership in Congress, just like the 9-11 style outside independent commission was opposed by them, even though they had originally proposed it. But then Trump 
made it clear to them that he didn't want any investigation at all. And of course, why would he? An investigation just exposes the central role that he played in unleashing all of these events. I mean, there's no one in the country anymore, I think, who believes that any of the political coup type activity or violent insurrection would have taken place except for his continuing perpetuation of the big lie. You know, I was wondering if you could comment on a quote by Harry Dunn, a, a, um, I assume a Capitol Police officer who was there. It's a kind of a haunting question, is this America? And, and, and you hear that question, I think, quite a lot nowadays. And on the one side, you have people saying, what's America is what America is supposed to be. And on the other side, you have America the way it actually has been, and including how it's supposed to be. I mean, it, it seems like there's a tension between the reality and the aspiration. So what do you think is the best response to that question? I mean, is this America? Well, um, Harry Dunn, uh, of course, is an officer who was involved in that medieval battle for four or five hours that day. He's my constituent. He's my friend. He was the one who uttered those words as this America man um, when it was all over. And uh, it stunned me because that actually is the the title of the fifth episode of the Eyes on the Prize documentary series by Henry Hampton about the civil rights movement. And it's a quote from Fannie Lou Hamer when she testified at the 1964 Democratic National Convention in Atlantic City as part of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party delegation there. And she testified before the whole country. And she said, you know, is this America when you know, people are calling us up in the middle of the night and screaming at us just because we're trying to get the right to vote when people are shooting at us, when, you know, there's all this violence unleashed on people who just want to exercise their rights as citizens. And he was asking the same question. And of course, the underlying pathology leading to that question in both cases is uh, America's original sin of racism and violent white nationalism. January 6th made made it clear that the ghosts and the monsters of the 20th century, which were a hangover of the ghosts and the monsters from the 19th century, are still with us today. They've just been uh, updated and transmogrified with uh, the social media and with the new internationalization of an alt-right movement with Steve Bannon and Vladimir Putin and um, Orban in Hungary and all of the autocrats and despots and racist nationalists all over the world. So what do you think would be an ideal way to grapple and come to terms finally with the original sin? I mean, we have museums now in Washington for the, about slavery and African-American Museum and Native American Museum. But that same obviously is only helpful for people who visit and most of the people who visit, well, I guess there are probably students who visit. But in addition to that, I mean, what, what would have to happen for us to be able to say that we've grappled successfully with that legacy? Well, um, it's something that we have to incorporate in our self-knowledge and self-understanding. I mean, the great thing about this young generation is that they really are beyond the racism and the homophobia and the misogyny and the anti-Semitism and uh, all of that. They're also a little bit beyond grammar, too, but that's a different problem. <laughs> uh, but it's a generation that uh, incarnates the best values that we would want to see evolve for America. But it's a struggle now 
Um, and to my mind, the vast majority of the people have already embraced the idea of a diverse America. And they embrace the idea that America is the greatest multiracial, multiethnic, multireligious constitutional democracy that's ever existed. But the problem is that we still have some deformed and dysfunctional political institutions like uh, voter suppression and gerrymandering of our state and federal districts and the uh, reactionary use of the filibuster to block the will of the majority and the manipulation of the electoral college, which has always been an undemocratic institution encoding the politics of racism. And, uh, you know, the electoral college has given us five popular vote losers in our history twice in this century alone in 2000 and 2016. And it's now proven itself to be not just profoundly undemocratic, but a positive danger to us, a violent danger, as we saw on January the 6th, because if you have strategic bad faith actors like Donald Trump, they can convert every nook and cranny in this antiquated and convoluted system into another power grab opportunity. Yeah, I'm also thinking about the curriculum wars, the um, conservative push to not talk about race in the curriculum, for instance. And you know, so one idea that I would have is, is if maybe students organized around uh, trying to have an influence on the curriculum, that they want a curriculum that's inclusive of the whole history, not just the good things. Yeah. I mean, of course, we don't want to put the burden of that on students since they haven't learned any of it yet. But yeah, these laws against teaching about slavery, these laws uh, against teaching about the history of Reconstruction or the Supreme Court's decision in the Dred Scott case, I mean, this is just an outrageous assault on history and historical truth and fact. But these uh, historical amnesia laws uh, are common now to authoritarian regimes all over the world. They're passing them in Russia. They're passing them in Hungary. You know, they want to adopt an orthodox, politically correct right-wing interpretation of history and then stifle the teaching of what actually happened. So in, in your book, you, you say we had prepared for everything, everything that is ex except everything that was actually about to happen, meaning January 6th. So you were, I guess, and others were preparing for the lesser forms of, of an insurrection, but not, not a physical one, but a manipulation of the various uh, arcane laws that might uh, allow some of the, of the electors to be replaced, for instance, with a different alternative slate. Let me clarify that because I distinguish between what I call the political coup and the insurrection. And one way of looking at what happened on January 6th was there were three rings of seditious activity. And at the outer ring were tens of thousands of people who were just drawn to Washington by Donald Trump's tweet to show up for a wild protest against the peaceful transfer of power. And a lot of those people undoubtedly came ready to commit violence, but others came more innocently and were sort of extras um, in the production by Donald Trump. And uh, a lot of them were drawn into the violence and the mob, but that was the outside ring. The middle ring was the ring of the violent insurrection. And that included 
the domestic violent extremist groups, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, the Aryan Nations, the militia groups, the QAnon networks, the Christian white nationalists, and so on. These people uh, who numbered in the couple of thousands, they were determined to commit violence against our police officers to storm the Capitol, break our windows, and then overtake Congress and drive the House and the Senate and the vice president out of the building in order to, quote, stop the steal. Okay, and they ended up wounding or injuring more than 150 of our officers with everything from broken jaws and necks and noses and ribs and arms and missing fingers to heart attacks, strokes, traumatic brain injuries, concussions, and so on. But the very inner ring of activity was the realm of the coup, which is an odd word to use in American political language because we don't have a lot of experience with coups in our own country. And we think of a coup as something that takes place by the military against a president. But the political scientists have also identified a form of coup called a self-coup, where a president fearing certain electoral defeat decides to overthrow the constitutional process itself in order to stay in office. And that's what kind of coup this was. It was a self-coup. So when I say that we were we predicted everything but everything that happened, what I meant was we knew that Donald Trump was hell-bent on staying in office at all costs. He had tried to get the state legislatures to nullify the popular vote and just appoint electors for him. He had browbeaten and shaken down state election officials, including lifelong Republican Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State of Georgia, telling him, just find me 11,780 votes. That's all I want. They had experimented with the idea of seizing the election machinery uh, and rerunning the election because everybody knows that provision in the Constitution. And then it really came down on January 6th to getting Vice President Mike Pence to step outside of his constitutional role and act to try to nullify electoral college votes and kick the whole thing into the House of Representatives for a so-called contingent election. So we predicted that stuff and we were prepared on those parliamentary maneuvers. We had also predicted violence, but what we did not connect or predict was the idea that the violence would actually pour from outside of the building to go past our police, to overcome thousands of officers, to enter the building and drive us all out of the Capitol. That was the part that none of us had foreseen. And as you know from uh, reading my book, Stuart, I, I you know, fault myself for that in addition to many other things that I had not taken that threat seriously. And I had you know, to told my own kids who were urging me not to go of course, we'll be safe, we'll be inside the Capitol. So one question, I, have, I don't know if you have an answer to this, but why was the preparation by the police and whatever other defenses were needed, why was it so lacking? I mean, why? I mean, it seems like there was enough information to know that this could have happened. Well, that is a story that uh, will be told um, by the January 6th committee in our final report. And there will be a, an elaboration of both different intelligence failures that took place and then different planning and operational failures. But uh, at the same time, it's important not to blame the victim um, 
you know, any more than you would blame somebody whose house got robbed or uh, a woman who was raped for having it happen. There was a perpetrator, and the ultimate perpetrator was Donald Trump, who unleashed uh, all of the insurrectionary violence and chaos against us. Um, and nothing like that had ever happened in American history before. Um, I mean, the closest you could find was an unruly mob that showed up in 1861 when Lincoln was was becoming president and the the peaceful transfer of power was taking then. But that mob was kept outside by General Winfield Scott um, and didn't get inside. So, you know, when when Tabitha said to me, you know, will we be safe when we go down there? I had a very clear image in my mind that flashed immediately, which was June 2nd, 2020. And on that day, uh, Black Lives Matter had shown up to protest at the Capitol because it was the day after the police riot or the paramilitary police riot that Trump and William Barr had organized against Black Lives Matter in Lafayette Square. And that was the day when they cleared the square with mace and tear gas and horseback and billy clubs so Trump could walk across the street and wave somebody else's Bible upside down over his head before invading uh, the St. John's Church. So then there was a protest the next day at the Capitol, and I had a very clear image of the National Guard assembling phalanx style on the steps of the Capitol wielding bayonets and guns. And so I just had that image and I said, no, of course we'll be safe. We'll be inside the Capitol. So I'd also like to ask you about the bonds between you and President Biden. You know, you've both lost sons uh, for different reasons, but it seems that he was extraordinarily empathic to you with your loss. He, he was. Um, you know, I, I, I called him the commander in grief because um, he has surpassing empathy and that has made him a great president for this period of time because there's so much trauma and grief in the public because of our losses of so many so many people in COVID-19 in the opioid crisis in the fentanyl crisis in the gun violence crisis all of it and he's somebody who puts the human experience, the individual human experience, right at the center of his political imagination. And, and how about empathy from your constituents? I imagine there's been an outpouring. Is that something you have to titrate and just you know read a few, few letters at a time? I and mean, how, how do you deal with that? Well, I've got the greatest constituents in the world, and they've been so profoundly supportive. And um, yeah, I describe in the book how it was difficult for me because I'm somebody who's been very compulsive about writing everybody back who writes to me. And then suddenly we had thousands and thousands of letters, not, you know, like 30 or 40 a week, but five or 600 a week kind of thing. And it's impossible for me to do it, especially because a lot of these letters are extremely emotional and many of them are excruciating to read and to respond to. And so... Um, you know, it was one of the reasons why I decided to write my book as a way to to reflect back to everyone my own experience and explain it to them because people would write to me in great detail about what had happened with a child in their family or a parent in their family or what they were going through. There's just a lot of trauma and loss out there. And, you know, we have to connect it to our political values and our political agenda. 
Yeah, it, it does seem that you've become a kind of a role model for how to deal with tremendous loss and still move forward and not... To, uh, I, I, well, thank you for saying that, but I don't feel like much of a role model, but I feel like I struggle every day and I'm struggling with everybody else who's going through this stuff. I mean, it, you know, Tommy said it's hard to be human and it is hard to be human. So we we all do our best, you know. Well, well believe it or not, that's part of being a role model is to admit that you're struggling. <laughs> you know, it's... Okay, well, uh, I, I definitely admit it. It's just uh, it's just an amazing story and, and so heartbreaking. I, my heart goes out to you. Well, you know, one of the things that I describe is so hard about it, Stuart, in the book is Tommy was, again, like the funniest person you'd ever meet. I mean, he was the life of the party. Everybody wanted to be around him all the time. And that's one of the things that makes it so painful. And I was caught on this, you know, bizarre dilemma, which is feeling just profound trauma and pain, but not wanting to be performing that for everybody all the time, because I don't want to make people more depressed and more anguished about life. And also because I don't feel like I honor Tommy best that way, because he was someone who thrived on happiness and joy and merriment and laughter and humor. And I feel like I honor him more when I can be in a, I can see at least some of the comedy of life as well as the tragedy of it. Yeah, they, they, I guess, need to go together. Otherwise, it's too hard to take. Well, when I was in college, you know, I, I took a Shakespeare class. They explained, you know, there were the comedy plays, the tragedy plays, and then the history plays. And of course, all of them are interlaced with ingredients of the others, but the comedy plays are always a lot of fun, like Twelfth Night, you know, if you can read that. The the tragedy plays like Hamlet give you the deepest possible wrestling with the human situation and the human dilemma. But I suppose it's the history plays where I feel like we live now. I mean, I feel like we history is an incorporation of the comedy and the tragedy. And then it's up to us to make history come out in a way that favors on balance the best parts of humanity rather than the worst. You describe yourself in, in your book as being a, a kind of having a been blessed with a sunny disposition and kind of optimistic outlook. And uh, certainly the, the events uh, of January 6th and the days before it with your son, I mean, th that must really challenge that disposition. But on the other hand, having that disposition maybe is, has allowed you to keep going. Yeah, I've got, yeah, I've got no doubt about that. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and, and I would guess that you've uh, recovered uh, your sense of humor. Sometimes, yeah. Obviously, it can't be all the time. I mean, you know, I, I haven't heard too many jokes cracked at the January 6th hearings, for instance. <laughs> you know, um, I mean, it's just super serious. It's just hard to uh, even imagine any humor at all. Well, one of the funny things that happened on January 6th was that, uh, as I was telling you, Tabitha was with us and Hank, and so... All the press was reporting, you know, there weren't really any kids there because we were told because of COVID-19 not to bring our children. But um, 
the speaker had made an exception because of what we were going through. And so Tabitha and Hank were like two of only a very small handful of young people who were there. So the press was reporting that it was my daughter and my son-in-law. And so everybody assumed it was that Tabitha's husband was Hank, but Hank's married to our older daughter, Hannah. And so everybody kept making the mistake saying, you know, pleased to meet you or congratulations on getting married or whatever. That was what passed for a joke for us on January 6th, that uh, everybody, everybody was making that mistake. On the actual day. Yeah. I mean, people, yeah. Yeah. While everything's happening. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I, I can only imagine how surreal the whole thing must have seemed at the time. Both scary and surreal, both. Well, it was surreal, and um, there were immediate efforts to lie about it. Uh, Matt Gates got up on the floor after we had taken our five-hour break because we were driven out of the chambers and the vice president had to flee. But he got up on the floor, and after talking about me and my family, then went immediately to start lying about what had happened and saying that you know, it had already been determined by the Washington Times that this was Antifa and it was motivated by Antifa. And, uh, you know, at least this is one day where he wouldn't hear his Democratic colleagues talk about defunding the police, which, of course, nobody ever talks about that because that's just a concoction of his fevered right wing imagination. So I, I just want to return to the theme then of, of uh, what it's like after all this time, but both unthinkable events. It's now a year and nine months. Does it give you a sense of perspective and and kind of um, kind of a groundedness that you didn't have maybe earlier? But this is this is this is what we're dealing with. You know, the um, aftermath of Tommy's uh, taking his life and the aftermath of January sixth, and these are just what has to be dealt with, and it's going to take a long time. Well, it has underscored for me, of course, the fragility of life and the fragility of democracy. For the vast majority of the history of our species, people have lived under kings and queens and emperors and czars and people like Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin. I mean, the bullies have run things. And, you know, our constitution is an enlightenment constitution written by enlightenment liberals who wanted to move humanity in a different direction. And, so that struggle continues to this very day. I wish Tommy were with us here to be fighting it, and it, but I know he would want us to keep fighting it. And um, we've got to throw everything we've got into these uh, elections coming up. I'm actually coming down to New Mexico uh, on, uh, I believe it's November 2nd or November 3rd, maybe both of those days. To Albuquerque? To Albuquerque, Yeah. yeah. We're we're a little bit neglected down here in Las Cruces, where you know the southern part of the state is a much smaller population. Yeah, although we are the second biggest city, we're bigger than Santa Fe by population. Well, I I don't know. I'll, I'll see if we can make it down there. But I, I I'm coming down with my friend Melanie Stansbury, who is a great, fantastic congresswoman, um, and Teresa Fernandez Legere, and um, well, all the great you know, Democrats of New Mexico and I'm coming to fight with them and uh, Democrats of Arizona for a big victory in November. Mm-hmm. It's coming up really soon. Just 33 days away. Yeah, I've always thought that the uh, Pledge of Allegiance uh, should have been 
not amended by saying under God, which happened during the Red Scare in the 50s, but it should say under the rule of law. It seems to me that that's really the critical difference, as you were alluding to just before, about the difference between our system of government and a dictatorship or a monarchy, is that there's laws that are, that are supposed to apply to everybody. You know, if, when Francis Bellamy wrote the Pledge of Allegiance in 1892, he wrote it on the, the 400th anniversary of Columbus's arrival in the New World, but he also meant to stick it to the southern states that were still saluting the Confederate battle flag. And so he wrote it as a radical statement. If you hear it in that context, you can understand. He said, I, I pledge allegiance to my flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, indivisible, a very sharp word, with liberty and justice for all. And of course, he had no mention of a deity in there, and he didn't want God mentioned, even though he was a Baptist minister. Uh, from Vermont and from you know famous abolitionist family, but then it was added in 1954, just several weeks after the Supreme Court's decision in Brown versus Board of Education, which is kind of kind of interesting timing. That's when Congress finally decided uh, to do it. But I remember there was a, a case uh, brought in the Ninth Circuit by a guy who wanted his daughter to participate in the pledge, but didn't want under God because he said it violated the Establishment Clause. And there was a three-judge panel, two Republican appointees and one Democrat, and they unanimously agreed that it violated the Establishment Clause when that was added in uh, 1954. And uh, I remember going on the, um, what Fox News show, the this, the factor, the O'Reilly factor. And so O'Reilly says to me, well, you know, why is it that, you know, you liberals want to take under God out of the Pledge of Allegiance? I said, it's not liberals. These are conservative Republican judges who said it clearly violates the Establishment Clause when it's added in there for the express purpose of endorsing uh, a, a religious principle. And he, and uh, I said, well, if you're an originalist, why don't you go back to the original Pledge of Allegiance? Then he said, well, no, we've been doing it this way for more than 50 years. If we're not one nation under God, what are we? And I said, I don't know. How about one nation under Canada? At least that, <laughs> that would be uh, would be geographically correct. But I said, no, I essentially said what you said, which is we should be one nation under the Constitution because uh, we're not one political party or one religion or one ideology, but we do have one constitution that we all uh, agree to abide by. And um, we should think of ourselves as bound uh, to our constitution. And it's the lack of constitutional patriotism that's been um, damaging us so badly since the second impeachment trial when um, seven Republican senators obviously followed the evidence in the Constitution, the rule of law, and 43 of them just decided to do what they thought was politically expedient. Yeah, well, I, I think this is probably a good point to end. Uh, thank you so much for coming on to Delving In. Uh, Jamie Raskin, Maryland's 8th Congressional District uh, Representative in the, in the U.S. House of Representatives and the lead manager in the second impeachment of Donald Trump. Thank you so much. It's been an honor to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.